if you, Rob, could leave the audience with a question to expand their mind, what would that question be? A lot of, uh, so there's, there's like a strategy to, to career planning. And this includes both traditional jobs, entrepreneurship, craft, art, writing, whatever. Um, and it's just something to think about, right? Because people are pretty strategic about their jobs, but I find when they're working on their own projects, that strategy goes out the window. And so if, if you're taking a job, you're like, okay, where I want to end up is here, but that means I need access to this industry and this network and this skill set. So I'll take these jobs to build those resources so that I can end up where I really want to go. Um, and we all have the opportunity to kind of chart our own careers and our own paths. And I find it helpful. And I guess this is the question I would pose is to think of it in terms of three goals, um, freedom, like freedom of time, place, attention to be where you want to be thinking about what you want to think about on, on the schedule you, you care about reliability, which is like a minimizing the risk and maximizing the certainty of being able to achieve financial security for yourself, your family, not riches, but financial security on your own terms. Um, and, and scale, like taking a shot at, at denting the universe and going after the, the hypergrowth big game. Hello, guys. This is JJ Rescas, the host of this show, Optimizandome or Optimizing Me, where we invite very high performant individuals and we deconstruct their belief systems, their values, their mindset, their stories. So we can learn how to optimize different areas of our lives. Our guest today is a professional entrepreneur. And if you think that makes no sense, that's because you haven't considered entrepreneurship as a career yet, which is exactly what our guest today embodies. He is a designer of products, including books, experiences, and lifestyle. Through a counterintuitive approach, he became a human lie detector who identifies valuable opportunities for product development. His expertise in the startup world is best portrayed in three books, The Mom Test, The Workshop Survival Guide, and most recently, Write Useful Books, where he plans to disrupt the self-publishing industry for good. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Rob Fitzpatrick. Hi, Rob. Hello, JJ. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's go straight to the point. Who is Rob Fitzpatrick and what does it mean to you to be an entrepreneur? I was never well suited for getting a job. I, I knew that during university and childhood even. And so, but the career paths aren't so obvious if you know you want to work for yourself. Uh, and so I thought the only way to do that was to be an academic. So that's how I started. I was, I was halfway through my master's research when I learned about startups through this new thing called Y Combinator. And so I applied, I basically took my master's academic research, which was about using video games to teach morality and philosophy to kids. Uh, because when you read a book, you don't get to make decisions and philosophy, morality, it's all about decision-making and living with the consequences. And so I thought video games would be well-suited for that. So I pitched that to Y Combinator, and, which is an early-stage startup investor. And they flew us out, and Paul Graham in the interview, it's only a 10-minute interview when they decide if they're going to fund you. He goes, you know, four minutes in, he goes, okay, I get what you're doing. It's pretty smart. It's never going to work, and it's never going to scale. 
And I was like, ah, oh, that sucks. And he goes, but I love your team. You guys can clearly build stuff. We built a couple of video games kind of demonstrating this idea and hooked into to, to popular music. He's like, if you can come up with an idea that doesn't suck before the meeting ends, we'll probably invest in it. So I was like, oh, man, will, will you help? And he goes, okay. And so we spent six minutes kicking around some ideas and, and they ended up investing in us. And that caused me to immediately go home and drop out of grad school. Uh, and I was worried about having an easy option to go back. So what I did is I intentionally didn't show up to all of my finals. And uh, so I made sure that I didn't just drop out halfway through. I failed everything in the whole semester. And so I figured that would make it tough for me to go back, which it did. <laughs> my professors were super mad. And that first business was a debacle. We didn't know anything about business. Realistically, what I wanted to be doing was working on interesting projects with my friends and paying the bills on my own terms. But I didn't know what was available to me as an entrepreneur. And so I thought you had to build a billion dollar business in Silicon Valley. So we tried, but that's a hard game to play. Three years later, four years later, we'd raised some good money. We, we had some good customers. I was burned out. I was miserable. You know, we eventually failed. I was so happy when we finally, you know, just were like, it's over. And after that, I got real interested in, in okay, I know I still don't want a job. But I also know that I, I can't build businesses chasing someone else's dreams. Like a, a billion dollar business is not my dream. That's someone else's dream. So I was like, okay, what do I want? I want to follow my curiosity. I want to, I want the financial stability and the freedom of attention to think about and work on the things that, that I find intrinsically interesting. So I, I did that. I set my goal on early retirement because I was like, okay, let's get the money thing sorted. Uh, I got there in my early 30s. Uh, I spent three years rebuilding an old sailboat. And I spent three years sailing around England, France, Spain, through the canals and the coasts, taking a nice little sabbatical. And then I realized, wait, I'm bored. you know. And so I was like, I, I want to do something else. So I, I landed in Barcelona settled down and started working again. And it was such a delight. And so the way I see business now is as a, a tremendously flexible set of options for building the life, the impact, the legacy, for spending your days doing the activities that, that, that you care about. And to, to me, like it, business is just the chance to build your own life, to build your own career, to, you know, to, to build the dent you want to make in the world. And one of the things I did along the way is I got real interested in books. I like teaching, but I don't like traveling. And so to me, books were a way to productize teaching, which was better suited for the life I wanted to be leading. And I, I took the product mindset into books. Like I tested them with readers pretty aggressively. I ran them through iterations of beta reading where I was looking at quantitative and qualitative metrics, figuring out where people get bored, where do people get confused, trying to design them in a way where they would grow through word of mouth and remain relevant for a decade instead of a quarter. And so as a result, books have been a really good business for me. And, and, and that sort of now, you know, provides me the freedom and the, the capital to, to work on larger businesses, which is what I'm, what I'm now <laughs> starting to get back into. It's like, I've, I've done the full loop from ambition to freedom, to reliability, and then back to ambition. <laughs> that makes sense. Now, it's, it's interesting. Let me go back a little bit to the past in, and in order to contextualize the, the audience, in how you started identifying or having this process of this iterative process of building something, not from the main grandiose idea that this is going to work, but actually going humbly and trying things slowly. Obviously, that is part of the, of the mom test, but it did not start with the, with the vision that you have right now. How did you start identifying those, 
that approach? I, I started by getting my butt kicked, you know, it's like dragged to the mud of business. Cause you read these blog posts, like uh, our, our first investor, Paul Graham is like his big advice. He says, before you've launched, all you should be doing as a, as a business owner is writing code and talking to customers. Nothing else matters. And then later he softened it by saying, and also exercising and hanging out with your family and loved ones. So it's like, okay, you know, maintain your own life, but in terms of the business, writing code, talking to customers. And then our next investors, our seed investors said the same thing. It's like, go talk to your customers, find out what they want. And I tried, I, I, I wanted to, I was like, this is unpleasant for me. I'm an introvert. I, I, I'm much happier programming than talking to strangers. But if this matters for my business, you know, I don't want to let my co-founders down. I don't want to let my investors down. I'm, I'm going to do this. And I did it for 40 hours a week for years, two years. And it, it was miserable, but I thought it was worth it because I thought I was doing what was right for the business. And then after we failed, I learned that it's not enough just to talk to people. You need to talk to people in the right way. And you need to ask the right questions and you need to bring in the right attitude. There, there's like naively like as you know i was 24 when i started my first business i was trying to impress everyone i i, I was self-conscious and i wanted them to believe that i was a credible successful entrepreneur but when you go into a meeting with that attitude you're you're there to impress them to pitch them to convince them you're not there to learn from them right so that's self-defeating and so it, it takes a bit of a humility and it's tough because you're balancing two worldviews on the one hand, you really believe in your vision and you believe that it is important and will happen and it's worth fighting for. But on the other hand, you know that like a lot of the details along the way are incorrect. And so you're trying to find out all the ways you're wrong so that you can reach the one important way you know you're right. And that's very difficult to balance. It requires quite a robust uh, ego and confidence. I don't know if it requires it, but for me, it did. Um, and so I wasn't able to balance that line. And so I fell too far into being overconfident. So I was like, we're amazing. We're visionary. We're incredible. But when you're doing that, you're not learning. You're not listening. Uh, and so now when I go into meetings, I'm like, hey, I think this is interesting and worth figuring out. I have no idea what I'm doing. You understand this industry. Would, would you, you would help me out so much if you were willing to share your expertise and just talk me through how you think about this issue. And that doesn't bother me anymore. But when I was 24, that bothered me tremendously because I felt like I needed to have the answers. And now I know, like, of course you don't have the answers. Your your, your job is to believe a destination is worth finding and, and then go then go look for the way to get there. Uh, and I, I guess to, to tack onto that, the what became the mom test, the topic of my first book, which is about kind of a this casual, humble way, I guess, to do customer conversations. It came out of all the sales literature not working for me. I don't know if it was a personality issue. Maybe it works for extrovert, extroverts, but it didn't work for me as a technical introvert. And what worked for me was to go in with full humility and say, like, I think this is important. I'm confused. You can help me. Uh, and, and then, like, listening to them. And, and so I, I wrote that uh, down in, in, in a book. And before then, where it came out of, and this is, I guess, part of the process also, it's, you never know what's going to work until you put it in front of people, right? And so there was this very exciting moment around 2000 to 2012 in London, where Lean Startup, so the financial crisis was 2008. Um, a lot of startup funding dried up and disappeared. Lean Startup began being an idea around that time. Uh, the book wasn't out yet, but the ideas were out there in blog posts. And 
London was in, in, it was incredible. It was a very small localized startup community in London. So there was like a bar that we would all get together at. And we were all trying to figure it out. We're like, I tried this, this was happening. This is what I'm struggling with. And it, it felt a little bit like the Renaissance. I don't want to be super pretentious here, but it felt like every time we talked, like new knowledge was being created. And that was, it was happening on Hacker News as well. And it was like, it was such an exciting moment. And, and, and so in swapping those stories and lessons learned and mistakes, uh, I realized that the, the thing that was most valuable to the people I was talking about was my approach to talking to customers. And so then some years later, when I had the opportunity and the downtime to write a book, there was no doubt in my mind. I was like, this is the one idea I've, I've ever had that has proven to be novel and valuable to other people. So of course, that's what I'm going to write about. So I, I didn't feel like there was a lot of risk and I didn't feel a, a ton of imposter syndrome because I was like, well, I've already shown that it's useful. So now I'm just writing it down so a few more people can hear about it. Hmm. And, you know, I also come from a tech background, from a, from a DevOps developer background. Mm -hmm. And what you do with the mom test, it sounds fascinating to me in, in the tech world. And for the audience, there is this thing called TDD, test-driven development. It's also called red, green refactor because you want to fail first, red, then make it happen green and then keep iterating. So I don't know. When I, when I was reading the mom test, I was thinking it looks like that. It sounds like that. I know it's super technical, but I wanted to. There, there's some counterintuitive lessons also. I, I don't know how much this generalizes into other career paths or pursuits, but uh, I, I found that th there's breakthroughs, right? Like there, there's someone who gives you a connection, who gives you an opportunity, who believes in you. And for me, that's like in a startup context, that's your first customers. Uh, with books, it might be that first serious beta reader who reads the whole thing when it's still a hot mess. And they they give you a ton of feedback for traditional careers. It might be that person who gives you the opportunity to, to trial out a new job or a big project. And for me, I've never convinced someone to do that for me. It, it, it's been more like uh, noticing who already believes in me, noticing the people who are already excited. So if you're a new startup, there's no reason that any big company should buy your product. But if you talk to 10 potential customers, one of them's going to be excited for whatever weird reason they like you or they believe in the vision or, or something about you just resonates with them. And, and they're going to help you out more than they should by any rational metric. And they're going to give you that, that, that break or that opportunity. And, and so this like, uh, it, it, it was a tough for me to figure out that I don't need to convince the people who don't believe in me. I need to find the people who do believe in me. And that's a minority. It's one in 10, one in a hundred, but they're out there. Uh, and and the more good work you do, the 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 higher that percentage becomes. And then it's like, okay, how do I scan for these people who who, who already believe in me, who already? And then you go, it's it's like it's what dating is. You're not convincing people who hate you to to marry you. You're you're like dating to find the people who like see that spark and and want to go on another date with you. And it's like structured serendipity. I I don't think that's appreciated enough in all these career paths. Yeah, I love that part. It's structure serendipity. I sometimes call it manufacturer serendipity, but yours is, it makes way more sense. It's like bootstrapped. And it is, it is a very interesting path, the one that you have taken. And something that I wanted to ask also to probably go back in the past is what did sleeping on a hammock taught you? 
and let's let's talk about that today for the audience. Yeah, man, you, you really dug into my backstory here. A little so bit. After my uh, after my first business failed, I was pretty broke because I poured all my money into pretending that we weren't failing. So I, I burned out my personal savings, um, which is a stupid way because you just get to pretend you're a business for an extra month or two, right? And then you, then you're broke. It's way easier if you can preserve your personal finances because then it's easier to do whatever's next. But that means accepting that you screwed up, which I wasn't emotionally capable of handling at the time. So instead, I had to go bankrupt, whatever. It's part of growing up. And so I, uh, I'd gotten kicked out of my apartment due to a clerical error in London where they'd messed up the dates and they'd accidentally rented out the apartment I was living in a month before my contract ended. So I, I, I went home one night after a stressful uh, day of work, you know, or like stressful day going out of business or whatever it is. And uh, all my stuff's like on the street. I'm like, well, this sucks. And there's like two new people in my apartment who are super mad at me because they think that I was the one who screwed up. So I, I called the landlord and I was like, hey, dude. And I was terrified. And I was like, listen, no biggie. Like rent a hotel for the other couple. Tell them that the place is theirs in the morning. Give me back my last month's rent and my deposit and whatever. And it, it got me out of the contract and it gave me some cash in my pocket. And so then I, I goofed around for a while, you know, I couch surfed. I, I didn't want to commit because that was the last of my money. I didn't want to commit it in a rush. And I was looking for a business. I was so burned out, like emotionally, mentally, physically. I was like, there's no way I can function in a job right now. They're, they're going to fire me day one if I even pass the interview. But like, I don't have it in me to do another tough business. And so I was searching for like survival businesses, which would take as few hours per week as possible just to put a roof over my head. And I found a building in London that was scheduled for demolition. And I put in, a, it was it was a disaster. The, the whole building was just awful. And, but I put in an offer. I like did the math on the, the square footage. And I was like, okay, you know, if I get a few desks, I can, I can break even by renting this out as like London's cheapest co-working space. And I'll need to be there physically, but I don't need to be present mentally. And so I can spend my days thinking and learning and reflecting and trying to process the the last three years experiences that I had. And so I did that. I, I took all the money that I had left, uh, put it into this warehouse to get um, the, the deposit the first month. And uh, I bought a bunch of furniture from a junkyard that I had to kind of scrape through and climb these mountains of chairs and tables. And the, the little marketing hack I figured out was that, uh, and this was all part of deciding to commit to the idea because you don't want to invest your last money in an idea if you don't know how you're going to get customers. But London had a quirk where it's pubs so the startup scene was booming, but and the events all happened at pubs, but the pubs closed at about 10 p.m. And so my plan was to go to every startup event in London, in my in my area. And as the, the pubs were kicking people out, say, after party at my office, and basically move every London startup meetup to my office space. And then some people would say, hey, this is a weird space. What's this all about? And I'd go, oh, you want a desk? You know, it's, it's, it's 40 euros or whatever. And... Uh, and that worked. And, uh, you know, I had other problems. There was a drug lord neighbor and a leaky ceiling and uh, some weird crime syndicate. And there were there were a bunch of issues to deal with, but nothing more stressful than a typical business. And that was I, I slept in a hammock because uh, I, I didn't want it to look like I was living in the office, but it didn't kick off enough profits for me to get an apartment. And so in the nights when everyone was gone, I would string up a hammock between two of the pillars and I would, I would sleep there. And it was awful. Sounds sounds great. It sounds so dreamy, but it's so uncomfortable. I kept falling out. It's like a concrete floor. 
I would wake up every morning with this terrible backache and I would have to wake up early because I had to, I had no running water. So I had to shower by hanging a plastic jug from the ceiling beams. And I, I'd, I'd heat water with a kettle, pour it into two big plastic jugs that I drilled holes in the bottom of. And then uh, I would use one to, to soap up and the second to rinse off. And I would try to do that early enough so that the, you know, none of the tenants saw me showering. And then the day would start and I'd be like, welcome to your office. <laughs> and I, I did that. I only ran it for about nine months, but it was, you know, it, it was terrible, but it was also incredible because it, it gave me my freedom of attention and freedom of time, which is where I developed the connections, the thoughts, the insights, the whatever uh, the, the, that set the foundation for, you know, the, the rest of my career. You, you need that surplus, right? To invest in yourself somehow. And, and for me, I, I bought the surplus of time with physical suffering because I, I, I already screwed my finances, which was my fault. Like if I'd just been willing to admit my failure a bit sooner in the first business, then I wouldn't have had to go through that because I, I could have just spent money, which is the best, better way to do it. <laughs> Very true. Maybe that was part of the entire lesson though. Right? Right. <laughs> there were some requirements to that. Now, let me, let me bring us to the present. What do you value the most right now and how that guides your decision-making process? Um, the, the negative way to say what I value is uh, to minimize bullshit. And the, the way that manifests positively is for as much of my time as possible to be spent on things that I find intrinsically interesting. The, the thought experiment I ran for myself years ago when I, when I was first like out of that first business where I felt like I'd been doing what other people wanted instead of what I wanted is I, as I said, how would I spend my time if I was retired? Not, not super wealthy, but like don't need to ever work or worry about money again. Can do normal stuff. I was like, well, I'd probably be reading, writing and thinking in the mornings and then hanging out at the bar with my friends in the afternoon, you know, having a laugh, playing a board game. <laughs> I was like, all right, that's not expensive. Like, how do I build that life where I get to spend my mornings writing and thinking and my afternoons hanging out with friends? And once I had that goal in mind, you're like, wait, I don't need a billion dollars. I don't need to build Dropbox to do that. Like, I just need a few grand a month coming in on autopilot or I need like one big windfall that I can then invest sensibly and, and, and draw down whatever dividends and et cetera. And I was like, oh, that's a way more achievable goal. And once you stop thinking that, once you stop playing the hard game, so the hard game in business is hyper growth, where every business has to be worth a billion dollars or it's essentially worthless. And I was trying to play the hyper growth game, even though I didn't want the hyper growth prize, which is stupid because you're just making things more difficult for yourself than they need to be. Uh, I wanted the freedom prize. I wanted the financial security on my own terms prize. Those are way easier prizes to get. And, and that really widens the range of, of businesses and ideas and projects you can work on. So it's like, for me, I got there pretty easily once I thought about it through books. I was like, I, I wrote the first book. I was like, oh, I never need to work again. That's pretty nice. And, you know, I wasn't wealthy, but I was, I was like, okay, I'm free. Like freedom, check. And, and that's when I took my little sabbatical. And in the meantime, I built other businesses. We built a, like a just shy of a million dollar a year, little education agency. I kickstarted a board game. They did okay, because I'd always wanted to make a game. I'd made some software. I'd done some little things that were like, you know, they, 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 they paid the bills, but they, they, I was like, where do I get this ongoing freedom from? And for me, like the, 
you know, the alignment of my abilities and interests and whatever, it ended up being books, just applying a business and product perspective to books. Hmm. And talking about books, what can we say about this one? This is your most recent book. I have right so... books. <laughs> Oh yeah, right. I, I'm super happy about it. Um, it was it was the hardest to write. So I found that each of my books has been harder to write. You would expect the opposite. You'd expect the first one was the hardest, but uh, I finished the mom test nine months uh, from first word written to to like out and published and in customers' hands. And this one took almost two years, I would say, and it's it's no longer. But I, I'm so happy with it. And and so far it, it's doing really well. It's growing so much faster than mom test is. And uh, also better than my, my second book is about teaching uh, in-person workshops and educational events, which COVID obviously uh, disagreed with. <laughs> but uh, so that book's basically holding steady. That one does like 3000, 4000 a month in royalties. The mom test does right now 12,000 a month in royalties. And, and that's growing pretty steadily. That, that's eight years old. And I expect it to, to keep going for a while. And then, but uh, this one, the Write Useful Books, it's only been out for three months and it, it, it did three and a half thousand the first month, four and a half thousand the second month, six thousand the third month. And it, it's growing so much faster and, and more, more stably than either of my previous two books. So I'm very optimistic for it. But also now I'm investing a lot more time in it. When I wrote uh, my first two books, my it was kind of like the survival business I mentioned, the co-working space, where I didn't. I wasn't willing to invest my time to continue to support the books after I'd written them. I was sort of like, I wrote it, it's done. And, and I, I did the work to make sure that 500, 1,000 people knew about it and, and had read it and seen value um, for the mom test with event giveaways, for a workshop survival guide with ads. And then after that, I was like, screw it. it like, it is what it is. It's going to succeed or fail based on its own merits. And if it fails, I want it to fail because I, I don't want to be spending my time propping up a failed product. And if it's going to succeed, then it's going to succeed without me. And, and that's ended up being true. But and, and this one, though, I'm building a whole business around the book. So this one, like, I was unwilling to allow it to fail. And so I invested and I'm continuing to invest a lot more of my time in promoting it and supporting it. Like, we've got a community of nonfiction authors with 200 great authors. We do interviews with other guests. We're like, we're doing all this stuff which I didn't do for my previous books. And we're building software. We've got a, we started a publishing business. We're publishing other authors. There's like, there's a whole business stack built on top of this book. And the, I didn't think I was ever going to do this and the, the, like commit this hard to a business again. Cause I thought all I wanted to do was retire early and hang out with buddies. But I found that once I got there and tried it and everyone should get there and try it. It's, it's a wonderful goal for early in your career to just achieve freedom and spend your time however you want. Because most people don't get to do that until they're 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 relatively late in life, and then, you know, maybe you were wrong, like, and maybe you wanted something different. And I, I tried what I thought was my life's dream. I tried it for three years, and I was like, huh, I was wrong. I actually want something different. Like, I want to work on interesting things with interesting people for customers I care about. And I was like, huh, would not have guessed that in a million years. Uh, and but you know, it's like because I tried the freedom thing. It's like freedom is a wonderful first goal. And then when you make a commitment later to invest your time, to commit to a location, to voluntarily give away those freedoms uh, in order to lever yourself up to be more productive or impactful or whatever you want to be, you're, 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 you're doing it with more awareness and no regrets. So like, 
I, I've taken on a ton of constraints in my life now that if you'd asked me six years ago, I would have said, oh, what a loser. Look how, what a prisoner he is to his life. Uh, but it, it's like, you know, now I feel like I'm so happy with it because I, I, I've done it with eyes wide open. Hmm. That is, I think, uh, the awareness actually that you that you mentioned is what makes the difference between um, dreaming without consciousness of the dream or becoming a lucid dreamer, right? Hmm. When you you awake, you're awake and you said, "Okay, this is working." Now, talking about actually, right, useful books and how how you guys are doing because, uh, like you said, it's going. I think by design, it's going that that good. So you right now have Devin Hunt as your co-founder again after several other <laughs> partnerships that you've had, right? So it's like a, like a marriage that or a relationship that started in the past. You break, you broke up, and then you came back together. Mm -hmm. Can you let us know what forged that one? And I know that you have there some interesting business marriage with, yeah. with Devin. So can you explain a little bit on that, please? You do good research. This is uh, this is cool. Uh, so, Devin is a really good co-founder. Um, he is so Devin and I. We we were we were like university friendly rivals. Um, there was a new. We were both in the computer science department. He he'd come there through a winding path through, um, uh, like physics, then architecture, then he ended up in programming. He was sort of following his interests. And for me, it was programming because I wanted to make video games. And they created a new major called computational major or computational media. We were at Georgia Institute of Technology. And it was the first year was very small. There were only seven students, I believe. Uh, I was one of them and Devin was one of them. And we walked into a class taught by, uh, well, I, I, I won't name the professor's name. He's still a dear friend, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to throw him under the bus with this anecdote. But uh, we... We, we got into a class and it was like about this highly technical, like uh, video game engine, like programming topic. And uh, the professor arrives and he sort of like, he gets stuck, basically giving the, the, the tutorial, you know, and it's some like weird meandering part of uh, 3D, whatever, some some junk that no one knows about. And uh, you can see the professor fumbling a little bit. And at a certain point, uh, Devin raises his hand and he goes, uh, he goes, uh, hey, professor, uh, would you like me to teach this class? You know, and, and the professor's like, can you? And Devin goes, I think so. And the professor goes, okay. And then the, the professor took Devin's seat and Devin went up uh, to the, the lecture thing and, and taught the rest of the class. And he's like, okay. And he's just like, and, he, and I was like, that's a smart dude. That's who I want to work with. Uh, at that time, he and I had never spoken. But something I've learned since then is that you need to develop these co-founder relationships ahead of time. When you want to start a business, it's too late. Uh, it, it's like try to get married without dating. Like you need to allow for the dating stage in a co-founder relationship. And so the best way I found to do that is by uh, going out of your way to work on side projects with each other. And so whenever we had the opportunity, sometimes we would even help each other on projects that that one of us didn't need to do for class, right? Just because we wanted the the time working together. And it meant that, that by the time we were starting businesses, we were already very comfortable with each other's working styles and quirks and what we were good at and what we were bad at. And uh, spoiler alert, he's good at everything and I'm bad at lots of stuff, but we, we knew that about each other. And so we did the first business together and it, it was great. And then, yeah, we, it's hard, right? Because I, I was so burned out. I think I got the most hurt by that first business in the, in the fallout. Like I took it the worst emotionally. 
and so Devin pretty quickly joined uh, a, a new company called List, which is now they, they just raised 85 million, I want to say, to prepare for their IPO. And so that's obviously a pretty good success uh, to be a co-founder in. And after that, he joined my the education agency that I was building, and we, we got that pretty profitable and nice. And we worked on a bunch of other fun little projects. It's kind of annoying. Like the only business we haven't been co-founders on is the one that's worth a billion dollars. <laughs> so I'm clearly the weakest link. But I've had over the years, I've had probably 10 or 12 co-founders across different projects. And they were all ridiculously good at what they did, like incredible executors. But probably Devin's the only one that I would work with again and who I've continued to work with repeatedly. And it's not because of skill. It's, it's about worldview. And he sees money and life the same way I do. Uh, like he's going to have his second baby any day now. And it's like, we're a team of three right now. And it, he's going to disappear for, you know, two months or more for paternity leave. And like, that's awesome. And that's something that, that fits easily into our way of working together. Because there's been times when I've been burned out or mentally unstable and I've disappeared for months and he's take, taken the, the work. And we, we actually, uh, we, we enjoy working together so much that we, we actually, I don't know the right phrase for this because it's not a common arrangement, but we, we merged our finances even before we were working on this current business together. So we set up a contract where uh, it, it's kind of like what you would expect from a marriage with asset sharing, but basically I get half of his money and he gets half of my money. And we've, we've since like removed a few things from that. So we've removed houses, uh, we've removed um, like advisorship equity. There's a few special conditions that we're like, okay, that's out. But basically anything we make from uh, stuff we build, from projects we do, even if we're not involved in it with each other, we both still get 50% of the other person's uh, take home. And the, the reason we started that out is because we thought uh, we were looking at the spiky outcomes from entrepreneurship, and we thought it would be better if we both had $50 million instead of one of us having $100 million and one of us having zero. And both of us, we liked the idea of doubling our chances, uh, even at like having the upside. And that's a hard arrangement to make with strangers because then you worry that they're going to be playing the game and like doing no work and waiting for you to succeed. Uh, but with someone that you have a long trusting relationship with, it was it's it's actually incredible. And what it's allowed us to do is to be very fluid about how we collaborate with each other. Because if one of us strikes an interesting idea, it makes perfect sense for the other one to drop what they're doing and support the promising idea because we both already have half of it. And so I found that our time allocation has been ridiculously optimal and fluid, like across multiple projects, and that we can still be self-directed. So I can say like, well, I'm just going to do this thing. And I've done it recently. I started a, a, a new business, which is like a, a video agency thing. It's called Exploded Media. Um, I'm sure the website will be up and will be fully announced before this uh, episode goes live. But it, it like it basically takes like stuff like this, like a podcast for for people who are busy but make content occasionally, and then gives you a bunch of like highlight clips so that you get daily consistency with your content uh, without having to create stuff daily. Anyway, the details don't matter. But I just did that. And at a certain point, I'm like, hey, Devin, this is taking a bunch of my time. And he's like, awesome. How can I help? Because he doesn't feel like the time's being taken away from our main business. He's like, ooh, we've got a new asset. And so we're, we're, we're able to be independent, uh, yet still collaborative. 
I don't have great words to describe it. It's an unusual setup. I talk to lawyers and they're like, you're, you're absolutely insane to, to run this agreement. And it's like, well, it's no different from a marriage, right? And they're like, I guess that's true. Uh, you know, it's like if we ever get business divorced or whatever the term is, yeah, it'll be messy. But, but for now, it, it's wonderful. I like very much this part of it's not me, it's we. And that is, I think, from both of you, a, a, a ego removal, which mm. takes me actually to make this question to you, going back a little bit into, into how you started realizing what later became the mom test. It is how did you stop your ego from blocking your growth? And, and I, can, I can exemplify exemplify that because when I say that I have failed so many times, you said first thing of the first rule of the mom test is do not pitch your idea. And you're right there in front of the customer. And it's so difficult. It's so difficult. How do you, how, what's the mental process that you get there? Do you recall? The... There's no magic switch. It, it's a hands-on skill. It's like pottery or skateboarding. It's a thing that you learn through a bit of trial and error because it's, it's a weird way to talk to a customer where, and it's a weird way to set up the conversation where you're saying, you're saying, Hey, I'm working on an idea like for whatever to, to help stay at home uh, parents with homeschooling during the lockdown, you know, for example. And uh, it's so easy to then be like, I have a brilliant idea. It's all about me. Let me talk about my idea. Don't you think my idea is awesome? And it, it, it it's just, um, it's hard to get out of that, but it, it's a skill. It's a practice. And then making that safe space where it's like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. This is why I want to talk to you. Like, because you have to give people a reason for wanting to talk to them. If you just say, hey, can I just talk to you for five minutes about something? They get really suspicious and nervous. That doesn't work at all. So you have to give people a reason, which is like kind of a skill to open that safe space. It's not an impossible skill. You, you do it with your friends already when you have a sensitive conversation, but it feels weird in a business context. But you practice that, you mess it up a few times, you get a little better. And then it's a skill also to be able to nudge the conversation in a useful direction without just talking about your idea. Um, it's like, and at a certain point, they know what's happening. They know you have an idea, of course. And they go, hey, so tell me about it. It's like, there's a little skill to just be like, nothing would make me happier, but like, hold on, you were saying something I'm super interested in. Would you tell me more about how you do blank? And you deflect away the request to get the pitch and you bring it back to them. And it, when you combine these little skills and none of them's impossible, it's stuff, honestly, you already do it in every conversation with your friends. But you, so you try a few times, it clicks and you go, oh, I get it. And then it's like, suddenly you start unlocking all this value from these conversations that wasn't there before. And it's like, wow. Uh, and, and then there's no way you're going to go back. You're like, yeah, why would I use a conversation to pitch and get binary feedback? Yes, no. When I could use that same time to learn. And I'm going to get this detailed, nuanced feedback that's going to let me make my whole business, my whole product better in, in, in countless ways. Uh, it, it's just such leveraged uh, learning and progress. And as a programmer to me, it then feels like a programming superpower. Cause when I first started, I would get mad. I'd be like, I'd get mad at my investors. I'd say, why are you making me waste my time talking to customers? I could be programming. Programming's what matters. And now it's like, hey, you want me to program the right thing, right? So let me go talk to my customers. Like what sort of maniac would pay programmers an insane salary and then ask them to program blind? 
like you got to be in touch, right? Like you got to be anchored to learning. And I've seen this apply in, uh, in traditional careers also, uh, you know, like, Hey, like what makes someone in this role succeed? Like, why did the person in the, in this role last time not succeed? Like what goes wrong? If you were in my shoes with what you know now, what would you be worried about? What would you be focusing on? You can use this in negotiations and partnerships. You can use it in hiring. You want that first employee. Why are they even talking to you in the first place? You're a small company with no reputation. Ask them, hey, I know this is a weird question. Why are you even talking to me? Why aren't you just applying to Facebook and Google? And they're going to say, well, because of this reason. Great. Anchor on to that. You no longer need to compete in terms of the highest salary because you found what really motivates them. Give that to them. Work extra hard to make sure they get that thing that they want most, whether that's career development, skill development, building a platform, like who knows, right? Um, I've hired incredible people where it's like, I'm like, why are you talking to me? What do you want? And they're like, I am embarrassed to say this, but I think I'm going to be able to get a better job in two years because you're going to expose me to the network I need. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get you that job in 12 months. Let's go. And it's like, give me 12 good months. And like, you're going to get the job you want. And it's like, I bring them to the customer meetings. I introduce them. What you are, what you're bringing to the table is pure gold. Very, very much. Thank you very much for that. And actually, let me talk a little bit about the survival, the, hmm. the workshop survival guide. We have to really thank you with my team, because even though that was designed for in-person programs, it's helping in our remote side of, of that. So I wanted to bring that up because you have had such an extensive ex experience or expertise teaching that it's not only, I see that it's not only what you said, it's not only um, a way of learning something to sell something, but actually being very open to learn whatever this person needs or in the case of this employee that you had, what makes you happy? I will try to provide as much as you can. How did that translate, for example, into creating learning experiences with learning outcomes to get people to different stages? So the, the main idea of the, the, the workshop survival guide is that there's a hidden design layer that sits underneath the workshop. Uh, we, we call it the skeleton, which is kind of the, the hidden educational design. And it's, it's experienced by your participants as, as a journey through time. Which, which is, so the slide decks, the slides, the words are kind of an implementation detail. And the slides, it, what everyone does wrong is they do it backwards. They start with the slides and, and then they try to like get the education out of it somehow. But it's a mess because each slide you create is costing your audience some number of minutes. And ultimately what you want to be designing is the tempo of learning outcomes per minute. Uh, and, and so you got to start with that timeline. Well, you start with the learning outcomes, then you shift it into a timeline. And th there's also a, a hidden element of the audience's attention levels. So most uh, teachers are very egocentric in the same way that entrepreneurs or product creators are egocentric, where the teacher is thinking about their own words. The entrepreneur is thinking about their own product. They, and they try to do a great job with their words, with their product. But what matters to the recipients of a product is the value received. It's how easy it is to get started with. It does it solve their problem. What matters to the recipient of an educational program, an event, a workshop, or whatever, it's two things. One is, um, do they feel like they're making progress toward the learning outcome or, or the accomplishment that was, that was originally promised in the sales material or the marketing material? 
Um, and even if it's corporate, like let's say we're, we're doing a, a corporate executive retreat to build our strategy. It's like, okay, after 10 minutes, do the participants feel that they're making meaningful progress toward a strategy? Or do they feel like their time is being wasted and they're being treated like children or being forced through admin and minutia? Hey, we're going to do an icebreaker game. Everyone try to remember what a way to insult your audience's intelligence, right? Like what they're there for is a learning outcome. However, that needs to be counterbalanced by the fact that we are humans with energy levels and attention levels. And so as, as an uh, education creator, you're balancing both the structure of the, the learning outcomes, but you're also balancing the audience's energy levels. And the way you manage energy levels, first and foremost, with breaks, they need time off, like good time off, 15 minute coffee break, no cues, you know, plenty of coffee. This is really hard online. Uh, online, what I've been doing is shorter sessions over multiple days. Or, or shorter sessions, like uh, multiple times throughout a day, rather than one long session, because you can't really do breakout groups or like relaxation time during a live. Anyway, so that's part of it is good breaks. And the other part of it is alternating the way you teach. So lecture is one way of teaching. Question and answer is one way of teaching. Scenario challenge or case study challenge, small group discussion, uh, uh, educational game like stand up whiteboarding exercise, each of these are different formats and they have a different uh, energy profile. And each time that you swap between one of these formats, people feel a little bit rejuvenated. Lecture is the most tedious and the most draining, but it's also the most educationally dense. So it's really hard to avoid using lecture altogether, but you wanna do short blasts of lecture, like mixed with these other formats. And in a perfect world, you pick a format that aligns with what you're trying to teach. So if I'm teaching interview tactics, like mom test stuff, I might give like a short theoretical lecture, five, 10, 15 minutes, and then the exercise, it's a skill, it's a hands-on skill. So the way you learn a hands-on skill is by practicing in a safe scaffolded environment. So there's a short lecture followed by a short try it now exercise where it's like, hey, you get to practice this new thing you've heard about. Run it in multiple iterations, remove the scaffolding, make it tougher over time. It's like, and as you do this, something else like, uh, which business do I want to start, for example, or how should I negotiate for, with my boss for a pay raise? That's not a hands-on skill. That's in a, a wisdom. That's decision-making and evaluation of a complex scenario. So the way you teach wisdom is with a case study challenge, typically. That's the way you like practice decision-making. So you're starting with like a skeleton of learning outcomes. You're alternating your formats to maintain energy levels. And you're trying to pick formats that align with the educational payload of each learning outcome. And if you combine those concepts, you get pretty powerful energy, uh, education that also at the end of the session, people feel fresh. Uh, I learned this from Alex Osterwalder from uh, Business Model Generation. He, he said like, yeah, you got to do your education, but what drives your feedback is not what people learned. It's how they feel at the end of the day. If they feel exhausted at the end of the day, you've done a bad job as a workshop creator. I, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like, if they feel exhausted at the end of the day, like you haven't designed it properly. Cause like, like maintaining their energy is part of your job. Uh, Cause otherwise if they don't have energy, they can't focus attention. And if they can't focus attention, they can't learn. And if they can't learn, what are you doing there? You're just a clown. So it, it's like, you need the full stack. Hmm. Thank you. Those are great tactics, actually. I will, I will, I will get, 
hands-on with those ones. And now, it's, 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 it's hard as hell to, uh, to apply online. I got to say like a lot of the, wow. it's part of why the workshop survival guide isn't growing. It's got like all of its foundational ideas are correct, mm. but like, if I'm being honest, I never figured out how to translate them to an online context. Mm. Cause like so many of the, the, the tools that I relied on just, just don't work. Maybe, maybe the software's not there. Maybe I just never figured it out, but, uh, it's like, hey, someone else can read Workshop Survival Guide and then readapt it into how do you apply that online? And that will be a very successful book, I'm sure. <laughs> I, think, I think that's going to be our, our next conversation in a few <laughs> years, probably. Hey, Rob, I came back and I did an upgrade on this. And we can have this conversation. <laughs> now, talking about learning, about your learning, hmm. who would you say where or still are your mentors or mentors or role models that shaped your path? Hmm. I mean, there's bits you learn from everyone. Uh, like from a small business perspective, uh, my, my dad used to joke that like the small business owner is the janitor and it's like his job to clean up all the crap that employees like, are, you know, <laughs> feel is beneath them. And he's like, you know, it's the least, least glamorous job in the business, but you got to be there. And it's like the, the consistency is like everyone gets paid every Friday, no matter what. You know, it's like, if you're sick, that's no excuse. You got to show up and give them their paychecks by hand. So that's sort of like a willingness to get in the dirt and, and like, uh, keep your promises. Pretty important. Um, Paul Graham is like, obviously he was my first investor and like wildly influential, but, uh, you know, everyone probably knows what, what he's saying. What, what's, what struck me the most is his belief in following your curiosity as being a profitable career strategy. So there are obviously some limitations on that. Like you're going to have uh, curiosities. Like for example, like I'm really interested in video games, but I know that because of industry dynamics for me, that's better for me to be a consumer in industry in, in video games rather than a creator. But there's other places where it's like, man, if you're interested in nifties right now or DAOs or blockchains or gen genetic whatevering, like, follow that curiosity. Like it doesn't need to be an obvious business or an obvious chain, but uh, for me that, that it's so inspiring also to, to hear someone like Paul Graham, who's been so wildly successful saying like, at a certain point, the future's unclear. You, you got to trust some heuristic for what you give your attention to. Like given that ambiguity, why not trust your own intrinsic curiosity and excitement and, and intellectual, whatever desire to explore. And so many people I feel who give advice are like so rational in a way that really does not resonate with me. Uh, to me, if it's not exciting today, I'm not going to do it. I, I have no ability to work toward a distant future. And so he hearing PG say, hey, follow your curiosity, you know, maybe in interesting spaces with some future potential, but like, you know, that's enough. It's like, great. Um, I, I've done a lot of that. And someone else who was really good, um, I had a, an advisor in one of my first businesses and... <laughs> He, uh, he, he was a senior executive at uh, MTV Networks in, in Europe, and he basically built this awesome job for himself where he was in a department of one, where he was the bridge between like the media division, the tech division, and the business division, because he spoke all three languages, and, and he could sort of like translate and build a cohesive strategy between them. And right at the peak of his career, when he was in his early 30s, mid-30s, he was like getting paid crazy stuff. He was irreplaceable. Like it was, you know, the, the corporate... Uh, gold mine, right? At a cool company and everything about it was great. He was like, he was like, I've got enough. And he moved to Amsterdam, bought a bicycle company and just like chilled. 
And now, as far as I know, he's like in Amsterdam making handmade bicycles. And he's like, he's like, this was the life I wanted. I want it. I'm living it. You know? And I was like, wow. You know, he, he knew what he was good at. He found it. He made it work. He got the money. And, but then he didn't, he didn't get lost in it. He, he was like, hey, this was the game I was playing. This was the goal. And, uh, and then he just cut loose. And that was like so cool to me. Hmm. Thank you for that. Talking about money or cash flow. How did you learn about it? I know that your dad helped you to learn that. Oh uh, uh, yeah, when when I was uh when I was little, I think every parent struggles with this. Like you, you they're like, oh, like, do I just give money to my kids as allowance? Or and then there's this whole thing of paying for chores, but then it creates weird things because then the kids don't want to do chores if they're not getting paid. Anyway, the 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 workaround my 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 dad ended up using. I'm not sure where the idea came from, but. He, he had this little uh, auto repair shop, you know, um, 10 staff, something like that. And he, he put a soda machine in it and he said, this is your soda machine. And, and he said, uh, he, here's your allowance for this week. It's a little bit more than normal. It was like $10 or $20 or something. Whereas normally I got like $3. And he, because I, I was little, I was really young. He goes, but you're never getting allowance again from now on. Like, so you'd better spend this week's allowance buying sodas to put in that machine so that you can sell them to people so that you can, you know, get, get your money for next week. And I was like, all right. And so I was like, you know, I was like, bought some Coca-Cola, bought some more and soda. That was my favorite, put it in there. And I was like, wow, people are buying it. This, and I was like, I started out super simplistic. You know, you, we bought the sodas in bulk and it was like, they cost me 30 cents. So I sold them for 50 cents. And uh, as I got older, I was like, wow, I'm making money. He, he'd like, as I got older, he made it a little more complicated. He'd, he'd go like, oh, you know, I think you should raise the prices, you know, maybe you're leaving money on the table and I'll be like, Oh no, maybe I'm leaving money on the table. And so I, I, I'd raise the prices. Then he'd go, Oh, people are complaining. And I'd be like, Oh no, people are complaining. And he, he gave me these little, like, he kind of used the vending machine as this, uh, like little business playground. And I think he hoped I'd take over his business. But at the time I was, I had my heart set on making video games, you know? So I was like, I don't want to run a business. I want to make video games. And so I, I never really got into it, but it was still super cool. And there, there are these cute little moments, like uh, they started charging me for gasoline to go, as I got older, they would, he's like, okay, now you got to pay for gasoline to go to the store. And the big box store, the Costco was super far away. So that would cost me more gasoline, but the sodas were cheaper. Whereas like the 7-Eleven, the corner store was really close and so no gasoline, but the, and I was like, ah, it's like, why am I, I'm doing math on the weekends and like, what's going on? Uh, and it, it was super fun for me. I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't connect it to business at the time. For me, it was just like, Hey, it's like this fun thing I do. Uh, but, uh, then, you know, 10, 20 years later, I was sort of like, wait a minute, this is a inventory, whatever cash flow. you know, it is sort of connected back. Uh, I, I don't know how much it helped, but I certainly enjoyed it. And I love the idea. Nice. Thank you for that. Are we still good with time? How are you feeling? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm at your disposal. Nice. Thank you. Now on the same note of learning, let's talk about the opposite. What is something that you Rob, and learned in recent years that improved the quality of your life? That I unlearned. Yes. Uh, so still working on this one. It's a work in progress, but I started taking two hour lunch breaks almost every day. And this is counterintuitive because I'm busy and I'm stressed and I'm overwhelmed. You know, I'm trying to support this author's community. I'm trying to build a business. There's a million things going on. I'm trying to onboard new employees. 
But actually, I was giving too many hours to my work and they weren't good hours because I was tired and distracted. And when you sit down and you think you have all day, you don't use those hours very well, or at least I don't. I don't have a lot of self-control. When I sit down and I know that I've got three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon, and like there's forced leisure time, a big break in lunch, the, the evening's off limits. Suddenly I found I was getting more done in, in six hours than I was before in 12 hours. And, and I was also getting a chance to refresh myself in the middle of the day. So now with two hours, you can do a lot, you know? Have a lunch, do some chores, read a book, have a bath. We, we, in, in this, we lived in this mountain village in uh, Northern Catalonia. And there's like a little uh, river that comes out a mountain spring right behind my house. It's like walk down to the rock pools, have a freezing swim. It's, and, and suddenly I hit the afternoon. And whereas before when I was working more hours, I would hit the afternoon. I'd be exhausted already, low energy. Now I'm hitting the afternoon. It's like a whole new day. And it, it was so counter. It's like a million people have written about this. This isn't a new idea or anything. But by, by forcing the leisure time, and limiting the work time, you actually get more work done. And then you also get more life. So that that, that was a big one for me. Another uh, change is uh, I'm 37 now. And uh, like I recently learned that I've always had ADHD. And I was like, oh, that explains a lot of my business and relationship failures in the past. And so I, I the way I've dealt with that is by, for example, I'm bad at consistency. So books don't require a lot of consistency. You get them done, then you ignore them. If you need to take a month off while you're working on them, nothing bad goes, nothing bad happens, right? There's no investors, there's no all or nothing market. So for me, that was an industry that sort of suited my unreliability with my uh, creative output. And I kind of built these all these complex systems around my personal productivity to account for what I thought was just like the weirdness of my brain. And then it's like, I learned way too late. It's like, oh wait, this is a super common thing. And there's really good support structures in place for people like me. So I, I hired an ADHD coach uh, named Larry Jones uh, from enabletables.com. I started researching it and putting like more structure in my day and like all this stuff. And I got to tell you stuff I thought I was just unable to do. It's like, now I can do. And it's like, oh, wow, this really broadens my career perspectives and business perspectives. And obviously I, I found a way to make it work because fortunately the, the things I, I'm good at, I'm relatively good at. And it, that was able to compensate for all the stuff I was doing a terrible job at. But now I'm like, wait, I don't need to be terrible at these things. And, and that feels like such a burden. And, and that's kind of an unlearning that these aren't permanent limitations of myself. I, I just hadn't found the support network. Uh, and I hadn't found the systems and the language to to understand it and, and work within it. So I've been, yeah, I've been working way harder than I needed to with much more stress than I needed to. Wow. So along the lines of this break, this two hour break that now it's starting to feel like, 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 like your own part of your own ritual. Hmm. So what other, what other routines or habits do you have during the day or probably, probably cyclically, because I think that you, you work on, on, on a different schedule, I, I should say, or than most of the people, what are those routines or habits that need to be there so that you perform the best? My, my biggest one is, so my anchor habit 
like what makes me happy and makes my days go well is to have time to write and think about whatever is most interesting to me. Could be a book, it could be journaling, it could be a throwaway investigation of something that I, I that never sees the light of day. It doesn't matter. It just that time for myself is like if I've done that, I feel I'm a lot less stressed about the rest of the day. And so that's in my calendar now. I, I send you a shot of my calendar, and it's in there every day from I think nine thirty to ten thirty. It's it's just like writing, and for me that is like the sacred anchor of my schedule, and. Even if I'm on vacation, I do it. Sometimes the time has to shift, you know, life gets in the way, like crazy stuff happens. Uh, but it's like, I, I make a real effort and that is so important. And that's like the long lunch. I found that some people say this about exercise. For me, I hate exercise. Exercise makes me feel terrible. But uh, some people say that the hour they spend exercising gives them back two hours of productivity. And I feel that way about the writing. I feel like the hour spent writing gives me back I mean, more than that, because it's also, that's how I discover my new ideas. That's how I tease out the stresses that are occupying my attention and slowing me down. It, it, it's for me, that's, that's the most important thing. And then after that, so my uh, Dr. Larry is pretty insistent that I sit down and plan priorities after that. He, he, he tells me to do my three hour priority and my three day, whatever, you know, it's like, this has to be done in three hours, two things that have to be done today. Eh, I do it sometimes. I don't always do it. I'm pretty inconsistent there. But I, I found that if I've like done my writing and I like take the breaks throughout the day, it's like, it's not that hard. It's like, I know what matters and yeah, you, you get it done. That's it. Apart from that, I'd say the, the only other thing I'm pretty religious about is keeping a lot of empty time in my calendar. So Thursdays and Fridays, for example, I don't take meetings at all. So those are basically empty days. Um, I do my stuff on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I don't schedule anything before about 2 p.m because I want my mornings to work on my own priorities, not other people's priorities. So it's like my meetings go in the afternoons on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and uh, that's it. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like you need surplus in your calendar. If you're busy every hour of the day, you have no time to invest your attention in, in what's next for you. And so I don't know how you have new ideas or interesting ideas if you're busy every hour. Even with my first business, like you asked where the mom test came from. People, people say you learn from failure and I'd say kind of, but that's not the whole story. For me, I, I did all my learning in the year after the failure when I was working on that survival business, when I had nothing to do all day, because I was spending all day thinking and writing and learning and talking to other smart people. And it was that year of quiet time that allowed me to extract the learnings from those three years of hyperactivity. Uh, and then those learnings laid the foundation for the, the rest of my career. But without that quiet time, you're just doing stuff. You're doing stuff. You're doing stuff. I don't know. Maybe some people can think and do it at the same time. But for me, I need to, to do, then think, you know, so I, I need that surplus in my schedule. Otherwise, I'm never improving. Hmm. It's interesting when you mentioned this, this, this idea that many people think, including myself for years, that we need to learn from failure. Actually, that's called a pathemata mathemata. It's a Latin Latin um, saying that's, that is basically translated to we learn from the things that we suffer. Hmm. But maybe that is just one way to learn, not every single way. Well, right? I mean, that was part of it, right? Like the, that, that, um, that kind of grows the forest of raw experiences because you got to live, you got to do stuff, you got to try stuff. Success or failure, either way, you're planting seeds and the trees of experience are growing. But at a certain point, you need to go back through that harvest forest and harvest the trees, you know, to, to like turn them into the, 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 the lumber. I, I don't know. My metaphor is getting strained here, but like, I, 
for me, it was like, it was three years of trying and doing and struggling and failing. Fine. That was like, had planted the experiences, but then I needed that, that, that year of reflecting on it, of writing, of blogging, of thinking, of talking to like, to extract the, the valuable raw materials from that experience. Otherwise it's just sitting in a forest somewhere and I can't actually access it. Makes sense. Thanks. That is that is such an interesting idea. I think I will try it myself, and I'll get back with you with uh, with with some some insight. There. You, now you can try writing a like a memoir, like a throwaway with no intention of publishing it, but like just just wrapping the story around those experiences sometimes frames it mm -hmm. and pops it all into stark relief. Thank you. That's even a better idea. Thanks for that. You are full of tactics and, and experiments. I love that, Rob. Now we're we're getting to the end of, of our of our conversation. I think that I hope that you're having a good time. And uh, we also wanted to to get to know so much how your mind thinks because it's impressive. You have gone from 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 programmer to self made uh, salesman to marketer. So Obviously, the titles may not be there, but your skill sets are are there. So, let let me ask first: Where can people find you on the net? Uh, all my stuff's at robfitz.com, and where I'm most active in terms of like putting out new ideas and thinking right now is on YouTube. So you know, I'm easy to find on YouTube. And that's like when people ask questions. Th this this comes back to it as well. It's easy to read like marketing advice from someone. They're like, build a mailing list. And you're like, yeah, but like your brain works differently from me. And, and, and some people seem to find it really easy to send out a newsletter every week. Whereas for me, that sort of constraint is, is misery. It's like, ah, uh, maybe I'll learn to deal with it. You know, now that I'm starting to understand myself and improve. But like what I like is I was like, oh, wait, YouTube actually suits me a lot better. And the way I set it up is people ask me questions about my books or business. And then I, instead of replying with an email, I reply with a five minute YouTube video. And that's been slowly building a, a little, you know, a long-term career asset for me, a little audience. And it's in a way that fits the inconsistency and the spontaneity of my life. And that's such a learning for me is that like, you don't need to do things the way everyone else does them, if that feels like the hard way for you, you can take the spirit, like the spirit of, of the, the newsletter advice is like all of life gets easier if you have an audience. Okay. Like that is true, but like there are different ways to achieve that goal and align it with your inclinations and strengths and, and acknowledge your constraints. So yeah, anyway, sorry, long answer, uh, robpits.com or, uh, or YouTube is the short version. <laughs> and, <laughs> that, was uh, a, that was a great learning. Whenever I have a good idea, I write a book about it. And so far, I, ha I have about a good idea every three years. <laughs> so that, that, that suits the tempo of my brain. <laughs> Thanks. As far as I know, you have also not published other books that you had uh, written before. Is that right? Yeah, I, I wrote five other books that I threw away. Uh, well, one of them accidentally because it was in my boat and my boat sank. And so that kind of got, oh. got ruined. But there were four that I threw away intentionally. And that was... Um, it's fine, uh, because I didn't understand at the time I was still figuring out how books functioned, how nonfiction functioned as a product category. And now I understand it, which is what write useful books is about. But at the time I didn't really know how, how do you test, how do you validate, how do you explore a, a, a book idea? And so, you know, those were like, that was part of my exploration and I was pulling out ideas. I was trying to figure out what am I interested in? What do I want to put out in the world? And it's like, Hey, fine. 
uh, that was just part of the process. Knowing what I know now, I could have avoided those dead ends, but at the time, that was part of the journey I had to go through. Nice, thank you so much. I'm so sorry to hear about the book. What happened when you realized that he was gone with the boat? I uh, so the the boat wasn't like sunk in the ocean; it was sunk in a river. So we we still had access to it because uh, it was just at the bottom of the river, uh, <laughs> and it was a shallow river, the Nivernais Canal in in, in France. Uh, so I got the pages physically and I sort of tried to peel them apart because I'd written it all longhand. I tried to peel them apart and lay them out in the sun. And it's like, it took hours. It spent like 20 hours separating all these pages and trying to save them. But in the end, it didn't work. So, you know, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the ideas. Actually, you have this idea, this, this machine that is constantly creating ideas in your head. So that's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, but they're not all good, right? Like they need to be tested with, uh, it's what we came back to at the, at the when we we're talking about workshops. It's about what the uh, reader receives more so than what I have to say. And so it's like me having an idea I think is clever is half of the equation or like less than half. But ultimately the truth is in like the, the beta reading, the testing, the teaching. It's like, cause it, it doesn't help if they read that and they go, oh, seems like Rob knows a lot about business. That, that doesn't help them. Like they need to, receive it in their head in a way they can act on and that's you know more about them than about me and you know that's that's why we we test these things with education with books with products with anything i, I guess that's part of the humility of it it's like your idea is a spark but it's not the finish line thanks for that it is a perspective but at least to me it helps it is helping right now in in my personal uh, entrepreneurial career so to speak uh, mm -hmm. A lot so very i'm very grateful for that now my last question for you rob is i know that you have been performing questions to so many people you've been questioning as much as you can now you we usually end up the, this program with uh, with this question and it is if you rob could leave the audience with a question to expand their mind what would that question be A lot of, uh, so there's, there's like a strategy to, to career planning, and this includes both traditional jobs, entrepreneurship, craft, art, writing, whatever. Um, and it's just something to think about, right? Because people are pretty strategic about their jobs, but I find when they're working on their own projects, that strategy goes out the window. And so if, if you're taking a job, you're like, okay, where I want to end up is here, but that means I need access to this industry and this network and this skill set. So I'll take these jobs to build those resources so that I can end up where I really want to go. Um, and we all have the opportunity to kind of chart our own careers and our own paths. And I find it helpful. And I guess this is the question I would pose is to think of it in terms of three goals. Um, Freedom, like freedom of time, place, attention to be where you want to be, thinking about what you want to think about on, on the schedule you, you care about. Reliability, which is like a minimizing the risk and maximizing the certainty of being able to achieve financial security for yourself, your family, not riches, but financial security on your own terms um, and, and scale, like taking a shot at, at denting the universe and going after the, the hyper growth big game. And I, I found that each of those, like, e each person is like one of those goals tends to resonate. Is it the security, the freedom, or the, the, the shot at the, um, the scale, the big game? And, and 
if you have that goal, like the mistake I made with my first business is I chased scale when what I really wanted was freedom. And that meant I chose the wrong stuff to work on, which made my life really stressful and miserable for quite a while. This is actually kind of the topic of the, the book I'm, I'm working on now. It's about this, like the career path of indie entrepreneurship. Uh, but it's like, if you have that goal and you're like, actually, I just want freedom or actually, I just want to like be able to provide for my family so that I can quit my job and, and like work on my own terms. Like it, it changes the sort of stuff you work on. And, and then you can look at an idea and you can be like, that's a beautiful idea for somebody else, but it's not the right idea for me right now. Uh, and it, it's like, it, it lets you chart this path. And then if you extrapolate that into the future, you can say like, okay, well, what sort of business do I want to have in the future? Like, you know, Elon Musk did this, we go into Mars and he's like, okay, what resources do I need to enable that? And, and then you can plot a uh, career path through entrepreneurship or uh, independent creativity or whatever you want to call it. You can plot a strategic career path forward that uh, intentionally collects the resources that you're going to need to, to enable your, your long-term goal. And people tend not to do that about uh, businesses. They tend to only think about the current business. So I, I guess that's what I would pose. It's just like, what's the point of all this? It's like probably not to stick in your career until you're 65. And, and sometimes if you know what your goal is, you can find a much more direct route to get there by, uh, by picking the ideas or the opportunities or whatever to support it. So sorry if that's kind of lofty. I have no idea. I'm still thinking this stuff through, but that, that's what I've been thinking about recently. I love it. That is perfect. <laughs> I really, really appreciated that answer. And I think we, we ended in a really high note with that. Um, thank you so much one more time, Rob. Uh, we could spend hours talking to you with you about so many different topics. And I know that um, we try to make as succinct as possible this conversation. Hopefully in the future, we'll have you again in the, in the show. Right on. Well, thank you so much, JJ. Uh, and yeah, I wish everyone well with your, your projects, your interests, your lives. Thank you. Okay, guys, if you enjoyed this conversation with Rob Fitzpatrick, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to receive notifications for upcoming interviews. That's all for today and see you soon.